welcome to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I'm your host, Sarah Dickinson. Join me every other week as we get real and sometimes a bit snarky about books and reading. Sometimes I'm joined by one of my co-hosts, Catherine from Gilmore Guide to Books or Susie from Novel Visits. Other times, I talk with a bookish guest, including authors and publishing insiders who give us a behind-the-scenes peek into different corners of the book world. But always, we're bringing you great book recommendations in every single episode. Let's get rolling. Welcome to the first episode of 2024, which is the Winter Book Preview. As usual for these quarterly previews, Catherine from the Gilmore Guide to Books is joining me. Welcome back, Catherine. Hello. Happy to be here to record the last episode we're recording in 2023 for you and I. Correct. We are recording this in 2023 because holidays and stuff. Right. So today we are highlighting the books we are excited about that are coming out from January to March of 2024. And Catherine, remember how in the fall preview, we could not find enough books <laughs> to include our usual amount? Yes. That was not a problem this time around. No, it definitely wasn't because initially I thought I wasn't going to have enough. And then I had so many that I was able to move pieces around and not overlap with you right up until yesterday. And we still didn't overlap. Yeah, same with me. I had so many to choose from. You did. So any themes with your picks today? The closest I can come to a theme is I've got balance among the authors. Four are repeats and four are debuts. But beyond that, the majority of my choices are about people of color, identity, and the American dream. Interesting. I hope it will be. I would say I also have balance. And I always try to do a nice mix of books with my preview picks. I do think about not having too many of one type of book and getting a nice mix. So I hope the answer to this question for me is always variety. Right. I also have three debut novels and four books by authors who've worked for me in the past. I have multiple books from micro genres that have worked great for me. And I have one pick that I'm calling my wild card which I will explain when I get there. Oh, a new category. Yep. High risk, high reward. <laughs> that is awesome. Okay. Or major crash and burn. I was going to say, or you go bust. Absolutely. <laughs> so Catherine and I have each picked eight books that we will share in today's episode. And in addition to those eight books, we will also have four bonus picks, two from each of us, which we will be sharing in a special bonus episode for patrons of the show called Book Preview Extras. And these bonus episodes always come along with our quarterly previews if you are a patron of the show. There's a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio to become a patron if you are interested in getting this episode plus tons of other great stuff. And as usual, we have not read these books we're going to share today unless otherwise noted. So we will tell you when we've already read the book. I have already read two of my picks. Catherine, have you read any of yours? No, I'm going in blind. All right. So I'm going to start things out with the first book that I have already read, and it is a five-star read. Yay. My favorite 2024 release that I've read so far. I loved Amy Jo Burns's 2020 debut novel, Shiner, but... I loved her sophomore novel even more. This is absolutely not a sophomore slump. And the book is Mercury by Amy Jo Burns. 
It came out January 2nd. So it's actually already been out for a week. And this is a family drama. At the center of this story is the Joseph family. You have parents, Mick and Elise, and their three sons, Baylor, Waylon, and Shay. Roofing is the family business, and all three sons live with their parents after high school. 17-year-old Marley makes waves when she moves to Mercury, which is a small industrial town in Pennsylvania, because not many new people move to this decaying town. Marley becomes enmeshed with the Joseph family, which changes her life and theirs quite dramatically. And Mercury, Pennsylvania is a real place. It is actually where Amy Jo Burns is from, and she herself comes from a roofing family. So there's a lot of her personal background in this novel. But She says in the acknowledgement section, and I'm going to quote here, the characters and events in this novel came mostly from my imagination. So there are some bits of the novel that apparently are rooted in truth. I wish we knew what those were. (laughs) Right. She also says that this is a story about the people I'm from, a story about a family of roofers, the messy yet beautiful ways they love one another, the mistakes they make because of it, and what it truly means to belong. And that's from her Instagram account. First of all, Amy Jo Burns's writing is absolutely gorgeous. There's lots of lines in there that really nail life observations, and her style just really pulls me in. And I said the same thing about her debut, Shiner. So I think I just, I love her writing style. This is somewhat of an untraditional family story. You've got the nuclear Joseph family. Then you have Marley, who becomes a part of the family in an interesting and somewhat scandalous way. There's a lot of sibling dynamics and in-law dynamics. And there's also the theme of trying to fit into a family that is sort of overwhelming and kind of overly committed to each other, which as an in-law, that's hard. Mm-hmm. This family is messy, as Amy Joe has told us. They're also maddening, lovable, and relatable. These are characters that will worm their way into your heart immediately for some, and then others, kind of you might start out not liking them, but eventually they start to worm their way into your heart. And it's also a story about how women prop up men at the expense of themselves. But there is hope here because eventually these women figure out how to bet on themselves. I do recommend being patient from a plot perspective. This story is character-driven, and it absolutely takes some really interesting turns, more from like a character twist kind of way, not a plot twist kind of way, but they're not right out of the gate. So be patient, and there is a payoff. And as I mentioned earlier, as of now, this is my favorite 2024 release I've read so far. Well, I loved Shiner as well. I mean, I thought that was just such a beautiful story. So I... I'm very much looking forward to this one. I think you'll love this one. I bet I will. I haven't seen anyone who hasn't. No, and I have started to see stuff about it around. I have too. When I read it, I had not seen anything. So I read this months ago. And that's Mercury by Amy Jo Burns. All right, Catherine, what is your first pick? Well, I'm going to start a little less glowing than you. I haven't read this, but I'm going to sound a bit like a Debbie Downer. Because I'm starting with a thriller (laughs) from an author I have mixed feelings about. The book is The Fury, and the author is Alex Michaelides. I gave his debut, The Silent Patient, four stars, but his sophomore novel, The Maidens, was only three stars. I think you mirrored a lot of readers with that. 
Okay. Well, then this book is the deal breaker for me. You know, is this an author I'm going to continue with? But the premise is the kind of catnip I can't resist. You have a reclusive movie star with famous friends and frenemies vacationing on her private Greek island and then murder. Oh, see, that sounds amazing. Exactly. I didn't even look at this book twice because I I thought The Silent Patient was fine. But I don't know. This sounds great. Well, that's what I thought. And as if that's not enough, you've got the remote location. You also have isolation added because of a storm that leaves the island cut off, which always amps things up. The movie star is Lana Farrar, and the guests are her six closest friends, all of whom have known each other for decades. So there are plenty of secrets and apparently old scores to settle. This could be your basic wealthy people behaving badly novel with a mystery attached, but Michael Leedy's is tweaking it a bit in that it's told in the first person with a narrator who is part of the group, but more on the edge. Also, he's a writer. So there's kind of that whole Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby vibe. I love that. Right. Here's the thing. I've read the first few pages and this character's credibility is already in question. Ah. So that raises the bar on any chance of getting to the truth, which makes this a toss-up for me because I love ambiguity in my fiction, but not when crime is involved. Then I want answers. So this could either be a big win or the end of my reading this author. That's The Fury, and it's out January 16th. You know what this could also be? Hmm. A possibly interesting spoiler discussion book for our patrons. Oh, sure. Because I think I want to read it too. Yes. It sounds right up our alley, please. Yep. (laughs) All right. My next pick is a debut novel. And this book has an initial print run, meaning the number of copies the publisher is printing the first time around. Of 75,000, and that's very high for a debut novel. Wow. Yeah. So that shows that the publisher thinks this is going to be a really big hit. And that's funny because the first time I had ever heard of it was when I got an email from the publisher with a NetGalley link. I had never seen it on Instagram or anywhere else. I've never heard about it. Yeah. So the book is River East, River West by Aubrey Lescure. And it came out yesterday. This is a literary fiction story, and it's told in dual timelines. I guess some people could possibly call it historical fiction based on the dual timelines, but I have my own feelings about that. (laughs) First timeline is Shanghai in 2007. We have a 14-year-old girl named Alva, and she is being raised by her American expat mother. She does not know her Chinese father. And Alva longs to move to America. She has this really idealized view of America. However, her mother gets engaged to their Chinese landlord, and that means they will have to stay in China for the foreseeable future. So the second timeline takes place in 1985 in Qingdao, and this focuses on Lu Ding, the landlord that Alva's mother got engaged to. He has to reevaluate his future as a young newlywed under the cloud of China's political reforms as China opens its doors to lots of foreigners after a long period of shutting them out. So this is going back into Lu Deng's past. 
The author is French-Chinese-American, and she grew up between Shanghai, northern China, the south of France, and she went to Yale for college. Oh, my gosh. I know, right? So I love this really mixed up identity and perspective that she's bringing to this story. The publisher is calling this part coming of age, part family drama, and part social drama. It explores race, class, and identity through the eyes of two very different characters, a young girl who idolizes America and a young Chinese man who lives through the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. It's also a mother-daughter story between Alva and her mother. And this is a term that I actually just learned through this book. It's a reverse immigration story. Do you know what that is, Catherine? No. Is it, is it like an expat? I still don't have a handle on what this means. Will you go to one country and then you go back to your country? Maybe. Your original, your home country? I Googled it and like couldn't really find anything. And this term was used multiple times in Goodreads reviews, but no one really explained what it meant. Right. So I'm guessing I will figure that out when I read the book. Mm-hmm. It's also a story about being an outsider, being half American and half Chinese and not feeling like you fit into either group. The Goodreads reviews also said that some parts are emotionally difficult to read, but the writing is really accessible. And I sampled the writing and I actually agree with this. I was pulled in immediately by the first couple pages. And the publisher does say that this is a page turner. Hopefully that's accurate, but we'll see. I do really like when serious themes come to me in a compelling and accessible package. And this is very, very early. We're recording this on December 20th, so a few weeks before it's been published. But the Goodreads rating is 4.52 stars, which is high. Wow. Yes, it is. And that's River East, River West by Aubrey Lescure. Catherine, what's your next pick? Well... I loved Lori Frankel's novel, This Is How It Always Is, and the way she blended hard truths and humor as one family navigates having a transgender child. It's a beautiful, funny book with characters I felt I knew as people. For that reason, I am very excited about Family Family, her new novel. It's centered around another sensitive subject, adoption. At the heart of this story is India Allwood, a well-known actress whose latest movie involves adoption. It's a situation she's familiar with as she adopted her 10-year-old sons, but now she's concerned the finished picture has all the same old tropes about tragic adoptions and adoption not working, etc., She's being interviewed for the upcoming release when she inadvertently lets slip her thoughts about how bad the movie is, and things explode. The press picks up on it, her children and their adoption comes under scrutiny, and she's attacked by the public on both sides of the issue. There's even more to the plot, but I'm going to echo you, Sarah, for this one. Go in without reading the synopsis. Go in without looking at Goodreads. I've read a little bit, but I think the less you know going into this book, the better it's going to be. And I'll be reading it mostly because I love Frankel's voice. She has this way with words that cuts to the heart of the matter, but with respect and compassion, which 
always makes me happy in my reading. That's Family Family, and it comes out on January 23rd. I've heard really good things about this one already. Oh, have you? Oh, good. Yeah, I've been seeing some people reading it, and they have loved it. Also, I knew this was about adoption. I'm planning to read this as well. But I didn't realize the piece about coming out and sort of trashing the movie you're in. That is fascinating to me, sort of the behind the scenes of the PR machine kind of stuff. Exactly. But what is your next choice? My next pick is also from an author who I have loved in the past. And his book that came out early last year was one of my favorite books of 2023. And the author is Benjamin Stevenson. The book I loved last year was Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. He is coming out with a follow-up to that novel. It's not technically a sequel, but it's in the same world. And the book is Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. And it's coming out January 30th. Benjamin Stevenson writes these mysteries that are kind of odes to classic mysteries. And Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone was an ode to Agatha Christie's classic locked room mystery, And Then There Were None. This book is an ode to Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, unsurprisingly. Ooh. Oh, boy. But... Stevenson's plot features six crime writers on a train headed to the Australian Mystery Writers Society's Crime Writing Festival. One of the authors is murdered, and the remaining authors use their crime writing chops to figure out who did it. And I actually love the last line in the publisher's blurb, so I'm just going to read that to you. It is, quote, how can you find a killer when all the suspects know how to get away with murder? (laughs) Oh, boy. This is like when you have a convention of defense attorneys. Right, right. And somebody gets murdered and it only could have been one of the other defense attorneys in the room. Same deal. Right. So for those of you who read Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, Ernest Cunningham was the narrator of that story. He is also the narrator of Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. And from what I understand from the publisher, while this is sort of in the same universe with the same narrator, same main character, it can be read standalone. I will report back on that during the Circle Back episode, whether I agree or not. But I really loved Ernest Cunningham's voice in Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. I'm going to have to shorten that title, man. That is a mouthful. (laughs) And I'm saying it so many times. (laughs) I know. That one's a tough one. But I agree with you about Cunningham. I loved him. Loved his voice. So I'm really excited that he is back. And one of my other favorite things about family was... Family is going to be my shortened name. (laughs) Everyone in my family. How about that? How about we go with that? There you go. So one of my favorite things about everyone in my family was how it got meta about mystery genre conventions, kind of a wink and nod to the reader. The publisher says that he does that again with this book. So I'm very happy to hear that. And he also brings back Ronald Knox's 10 Commandments of Detective Fiction, which he basically cut and pasted into the front of everyone in my family. This means that the reader can try to follow along and solve the mystery along with the characters in the book. There are no gotcha elements, no unreliable narrator, no split personality disorder, no questions being answered by something supernatural. I love this because these are all things that bother me about contemporary kind of popcorn thrillers. And A lot of the Goodreads reviewers said that the plot is very clever and that they did not correctly guess the murderer. 
So I'm really looking forward to this. Everyone on this train is a suspect by Benjamin Stevenson. I didn't even know about this one. And I loved everyone in my family. So I'm very excited about this. Oh, good. His structure and his style is so good. I mean, it's, it's so unique. Right. Exactly. Fresh. To that point, I will say that if you start the book and you hate his voice, do not continue. <laughs> right. That's true. No, it's very singular. And if it doesn't work for you, it's not going to get better. Right. You either love it or you don't. Right. All right, Catherine, what is your next pick? I have The Things We Didn't Know. It's a debut novel set in the 1950s about Andrea and Pablo, siblings uprooted from their Massachusetts home and taken to Puerto Rico, their mother's home country. Apparently, her plan goes no further than that because she leaves them with her family and promises to return when she has money. Months later, they do return to Massachusetts only to find life as they knew it to be very different. There are two volatile elements to this novel from what I can tell. First, the environment. Small New England town in the 1950s when American paranoia was being fanned by Congress with the McCarthy hearings. The second would be Andrea and Pablo are both preteens. So this is a coming of age novel. They've been raised as Americans, which we know they are, but in the 1950s, it wasn't so clear that Puerto Rico was an American territory. And now they're going to a world utterly foreign to them, despite it being their mother's homeland. When they get back to their town in Massachusetts, they're once again outsiders because they've been gone. But now they're faced with all the social drama that comes with tweens, preteens, whatever you want to call it. I just don't know how much of the drama is going to be internal and how much will be external, which could be the difference between something more literary and character driven and something faster paced. Either way, I'm curious as long as the writing is good. That's the things we didn't know. And it comes out February 6th. This sounds like a Susie book. It could be. Yeah. 1950s historical fiction and coming of age put together. Yep. Absolutely. It sounds good. I'll let you vet it for me. Okay, perfect. Except I don't like the title. Too many little words I can't remember. <laughs> You're really struggling with that today, aren't you? Well, actually true. Yeah, the train title is a lot. <laughs> right. And I keep typing in everyone on the train, and it's actually everyone on this train. <laughs> and Goodreads will not send me the results if you type the instead of this. Of course they won't. No, they're so literal. Yes, they are. Their search engine is terrible. It is. All right. My next pick is sports fiction. And I get really excited when I can work a sports fiction novel into the quarterly preview. And I've had great luck with that lately. I actually have two sports fiction books today. This is a really unique one. It's a debut called Dixon Descending by Karen Alton. Our main character, Dixon, is an Olympic-level runner who just missed making the actual Olympic team. After missing the Olympic team, he settled into a job as a school psychologist and stayed far away from attempting any lofty achievements. He was really kind of burned by just missing the Olympic team. And amid this much more settled, calm, less dramatic life, Dixon and his brother Nate decide to attempt to become the first Black Americans to summit Mount Everest. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I've loved books about Mount Everest before. 
Me too. I know, right? So I loved Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. Obviously, that's sort of the pinnacle book about Mount Everest. And then there was a thriller called Breathless by Amy McCullough that came out. I think it was last year or the year before. I also loved that. And I really appreciate the unique angle that Dixon Descending is taking on this story. This book is coming out in the wake of the first all-Black team summiting Everest in real life last year. And in the subsequent media coverage, that team, which was called Full Circle, talked about the lack of Black representation in mountaineering, which adds a lot of good context to this novel. And in addition to the Everest story, I'm really interested in the exploration of the psychology of just missing an Olympic team, like the dreaded third place finish in the swimming trials. Because in swimming, the top two people in each event go to the Olympics. So you finish third by two one hundredths of a second, which is nothing. And all of a sudden, you're not an Olympian. According to Goodreads, the story is about what happens on the mountain, but it really delves into the return home from the mountain. We also get flashbacks to Dixon and Nate's life before the climb and a lot of exploration of the psychological impacts of the climb and things Dixon and Nate are dealing with in their lives. And I love the fact that this is going to get deep into the psychology of what they're experiencing. And I also hear it's a pretty emotional read. This sounds so interesting. I just heard you typing. Were you requesting this (laughs) as I was talking? (laughs) No, but I was making a note. (laughs) I was highlighting it. (laughs) Perfect. That's the reaction I want. (laughs) I'm very interested. That's Dixon Descending by Karen Outen. And that's coming out February 6th. Catherine, what's your next pick? In the same way you're happy to be back with a sports novel, I'm thrilled to be back with not just Greek mythology, but mythology about an unlikable woman. I knew by this title that this was Greek mythology. (laughs) You didn't bring one in the fall, I don't think. So we were due, right? Right. You are absolutely due, especially because I believe last year's winter preview, I believe Stoneblind, which of course was also Greek mythology, ended up being my favorite book from the preview. So fingers crossed, this is the same thing. The novel is Medea by Eilish Quinn. And in the classic tale, Medea is the niece of Circe and is believed to be a witch. She used her powers to help Jason in his pursuit of the Golden Fleece, another famous Greek myth. And then she used them again to escape from her father's kingdom and again to get Jason to marry her. But more importantly than her quote-unquote powers, When Jason wants to leave her, she kills their children in an act of revenge, making her one of the most hated women in mythology, right up there with another favorite of mine, Clytemnestra. So we have a deeply problematic main character, Greek mythology, and a retelling of a classic myth. Of course I want to read this. I've loved every classic Greek retelling I've read. Plus, it's a debut, and from what I can tell, the author has no interest in the traditional portrayal of Medea, opting instead to let her tell her own story, instead of just being a one-note villain created by ancient Greek men. I'm hoping she'll parse out a more realistic portrayal of a whole woman. 
a woman with no control over her life until she takes it. And that's Medea, and it comes out February 24th. I wonder what's going to happen when authors run out of women in Greek mythology to bring to the center of modern stories. (laughs) (laughs) This is a huge trend going on right now. It is. And I may have at least a partial answer further on in this episode with another one of my choices. How's that? Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. All right. My next pick is not Greek mythology, which is probably the most unsurprising thing I've said all day. (laughs) (laughs) If you're a new listener, just know that Greek mythology is not up my alley. New. So my next pick is from my favorite micro genre of last year, which is intense love stories that are not romances. So, you know, I had to get at least one of these in the preview and I had more than one to choose from. So I chose Leaving by Roxana Robinson. It's coming out February 13th. As y'all know, I like to go into these kinds of books pretty blind. So my plot summary here is going to be a little more vague because I myself don't want to read that much detail about it. Our couple in this story is Sarah and Warren, and they were in an intense relationship in college until some sort of incident ended the relationship. Years later, and after believing they'd never see each other again, they run into each other at the opera. Sarah is now divorced, but Warren is still married, and they both have children. So what do they do from here? Hmm. Roxana Robinson has written six previous novels and three short story collections. I had never heard of her. Neither have I. Wow. Seems that she's fairly prolific. (laughs) Anyway, glad that I'm hearing about her now. I hope. This is a later-in-life love story with older protagonists who both have the complications of families, and I love that. You know, I read a lot of intense love stories about 20-somethings, right? Sort of the quarter life. I like that this is different. Yes. It explores how these complications impact love and what happens when the person you were possibly supposed to have ended up with resurfaces after one or both of you have moved on to other people. And this kind of reminds me of The Paper Palace. Ah, okay. That particular part of this book. This is a character-driven story, as most of these books that fall in this micro-genre are. And Goodreads reviewers say it is highly discussable and would make a great book club choice. And the publisher says this is for readers who love Elizabeth Strout, who loved Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser-Ackner, and The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo. All books and authors I loved as well. And these are not author blurbs, y'all. These are comparisons that the publisher is making. And that's Leaving by Roxana Robinson coming out February 13th. Catherine, what's your next pick? This is my only nonfiction choice for the winter preview and for my total winter reading because nonfiction has not been working for me at all this fall. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know the last nonfiction book I finished. I just cannot stick with them. Was it The Many Lives of Mama Love? Didn't you bring that to the preview? It might have been. It might have been. Well, look, if you're going to get stuck on one, that's a good one to have the last in your brain for quite a while. That's right. That's right. Well, this is a memoir called Whiskey Tender by Deborah Jackson Taffa, a Native American whose background and her family's attitudes about that background end up running counter to her own. She was born in California to parents whose own parents were sent to Indian boarding schools. 
ingraining in the family the understanding that blending in was the only way to get ahead. Her parents get government jobs that take them to New Mexico, where she spends most of her life living on Navajo territory, moving on and off reservations and exposing her to a new set of tribal traditions and beliefs. It's only as she starts getting older that Tafa starts questioning why she has to live her life a certain way in order to, quote unquote, succeed. Her parents focus on education and the socioeconomic structures of white culture don't make sense to her. She's asking the question, assimilation at what cost? I can only make it in this world if I erase and forget everything that makes me who I am. And ultimately, what is even meant by the American dream? And is it truly achievable for anyone who doesn't fit in a very narrow mold? My sense is that this is going to be the type of personal memoir that works for me. There are her memories and reminiscences, but they're recalled alongside the history of enforced assimilation and where that's left Native Americans today. Tafa is mixed tribe, so there's the additional weight of suppressing two sets of traditions, two sets of history to forget, and generational trauma to ignore. There's so much territory to be covered in this memoir, and I know it's going to be challenging reading, but it's the kind I value. So I'm ready to read Whiskey Tender when it comes out February 27th. That sounds really hard and really good. I know. I'm very, very curious about it. It's getting a lot of good press. I hope it breaks your down streak. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. Thank you. What's next for you? Well, possibly a recovery book from Whiskey Tinder. Oh, good. I am thrilled to bring one of my favorite underrated gem authors of the past few years to the preview. I know her. You do know her. I discovered Rachel Kapelke Dale in 2021 when she came out with her debut called The Ballerinas. And I also loved her follow-up a year later called The Ingenue. And I've already read her third book, The Fortune Seller. And it's coming out on February 14th. I will say, I would like her to slow down her publishing schedule. Oh. A book a year right out of the gates after your debut novel, that is tough. And I worry that she's not going to be able to maintain her level. Mm -hmm. So St. Martin's, please hear my call. St. Martin's (laughs) is her publisher, by the way. One other plea I had for St. Martin's and I think you had this too, her previous two novels were stuck with December publication dates. You're right. Which is awful. Your book has next to no chance of doing very well. Exactly. She got moved to February. So I'm very happy for her. Thank you, St. Martin's. (laughs) Yes. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. All right. So The Fortune Seller is a dark spin on the wealthy people behaving badly as told by a middle-class outsider microgenre. Sort of like the book you were talking about earlier that had the Nick Carraway character. Right, exactly. The Fury. Yeah. So we have a Nick Carraway character here, too. She's not a writer, but she is from a different social class than the rest of the characters in the book. So Rosie McAllister is our Nick Carraway, and she is from a middle class Midwestern family. She joins the equestrian team at Yale, surrounding herself with very wealthy girls led by Cressida, who is the daughter of a billionaire hedge fund manager and a former equestrian champion. Partway through Rosie's time at Yale, 
a mysterious star rider named Annalise joins their team. And this throws the group dynamics into total chaos. When Rosie is trying to make it in New York City after she graduates, she begins to put the pieces of her life in college together. So we get the team before Annalise, we get the team once Annalise arrives, and then we get Rosie in New York City after it's all said and done, kind of reflecting back and learning more about life and coming to some realizations, let's say. Despite the fact that I loved Kapelki Dale's two previous novels, I did go into this book with a bit of uncertainty. It has some elements that I love, but it also has some elements that make me nervous. So campus novel, check. Wealthy people behaving badly, check. But tarot cards, that could get real weird. Oh, I love that. That's a total draw for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, see, for me, I'm like, I don't know about this. There's a bunch of tarot cards on the cover. (laughs) We've also obviously got horses, which I could kind of take take it or leave it with the horses. But Rachel Kapelke-Dale was on the equestrian team at Brown University. So I was confident she would write about that experience really authentically. And I think that did add a lot to this story. Not that I know what an authentic equestrian team feels like. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt deep and layered. But, but to those of us that have never been anywhere near that, it sounded really good. It sounded authentic <laughs> to me. Somebody that competed in equestrian in, in college will have to let me know. But I ended up really liking this book after having some question marks during the first half. The first half is heavy on the horses and the campus novel setting and the friendship dynamics between Rosie, Annalise, and the rest of the horse girls. And I was enjoying that fine, but it had sort of a sameness feeling and I was wondering what the point of it all was going to be or if we were going to get an overall point of it. The second half really picks up steam and Rosie starts putting the puzzle pieces together and coming to realizations about her life, her choices, and her dreams. And it definitely became clear what the point of everything was. There's commentary on class, wealth, and privilege, and also about resentment and the power structure in the business world. And I will say, she handled the tarot cards beautifully. Oh, good. The way this comes into the story is that Annalise is into reading people's cards. And She begins every chapter with a particular card and then an explanation of what that card means. And it's sort of a little bit of foreshadowing into what's going to happen in that coming chapter. And I thought the tarot connections added thoughtfulness and depth to the story. They did not read as weird to me. And I think none of this is new territory. We've seen all this stuff in books before. But I feel that the way that Kapelki Dale put all of these things together was fresh And I will say that earlier this year, I tried Girls and Their Horses by Eliza Jane Brazier, and I did not love that. And I think The Fortune Seller is more of what I wanted Girls and Their Horses to be. It's a little more subtle. It's a little more insidious and kind of observing of the world it's set in. It's less surface level and popcorn thriller-esque. And that's The Fortune Seller by Rachel Kapelke-Dale. I have that one, and I am really looking forward to it. Let me know what you think. (laughs) Okay. All right, Catherine, what's your next pick? Well, my second Native American pick is the sophomore novel from Tommy Orange. It's a sequel to his debut, There, There. Sort of. 
The book is Wandering Stars, and it begins back in 1864 in the aftermath of a real event in American history, the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado. And once again, I have to admit, I know nothing about this event, which makes me feel awful because I grew up in Colorado. But if I learned this, which I doubt, I've forgotten. It was an attack by the U.S. Army on a Native American settlement. Wandering Stars is one of the survivors, so he's sent to an army prison where he's forced to renounce his Native identity and adopt Christianity. One of the guards is a religious zealot who believes he needs to kill the Indian to save the man. And that is a direct quote because this is a real-life character. This is a man from history. The next generation in the story is Wandering Star's son, who's sent to an Indian boarding school where one of his only friends is a young girl named Opal. The schoolmaster is the same guard from the prison. In the present day, Opal is the aunt to Orville Redfeather, the boy almost killed in the school shooting in There There. So there's the circle completed. I don't think you need to read There There, though. I believe this is still a standalone. Yeah, that'll be interesting to figure that out. Right. He is a powerhouse writer who drives home his points with such force and clarity, all you can do is receive them. He has no time for the blame game or inducing guilt. He is simply presenting truths that have been conveniently ignored for far too long. The massacre and the prison guard are both factual. And that he can do this in a way that keeps my attention firmly on the page, even when I'm uncomfortable, is one of the reasons I'm so happy he has a new book out. That's Wandering Stars, and it will be available on March 5th. I think this is one of the highly anticipated books of 2024. I bet it is. Did you ever read There, There? I did not read There, There. But I know it won a bunch of awards, or at least was in the conversation for a bunch of awards. That might be an interesting backlist one for you. It's been long enough. Yeah, for sure. All right. My next pick is my wild card pick. (gasps) Okay, here we go. It is possibly my weirdest pick of the day. Definitely my riskiest, but also there is upside, I think. And I will tell you why. (laughs) So the book is Say Hello to My Little Friend by Janine Capo Crusette, and it's coming out March 5th. The plot is completely out there. I'm going to attempt to succinctly describe it. (laughs) Well, the title is based on a completely... Do you know where it's from? Garface. Yep. Isn't it Al Pacino? Yep. Yep. So that plays a part in the story. Okay. It was intended to be taken from Scarface. Okay. All right. So our main character is Izzy and he is a Pitbull impersonator, like the musician Pitbull. But he has to quit this gig when he gets a cease and desist letter from the actual Pitbull's legal team. He then decides to fashion himself after Tony Montana instead of Pitbull. And for those who don't know, I didn't know, actually, to look this up. Tony Montana is the main character in Scarface. He rose from Cuban immigrant to Miami drug lord. Let's put that there. (laughs) Also, Izzy befriends an orca, which is a killer whale. What? That is housed in the Miami Seaquarium. 
and delves into the underbelly of Miami to learn the truth about his escape from Cuba. Wait. So there's a lot of weird and random stuff going on here. I was going to say, how, yeah, how are these all going to link together? That is the big question. And that is why this is my wild card pick. I'll say. Okay. I realize that this plot seems like not up my alley at all. And it doesn't. Sarah, honestly, yeah, I cannot believe that this is on your list. So I'm going to get to why this is on my list. Okay. First of all, one other thing that makes me nervous about this book is that other than the premise is totally out there and could go really, really wrong or be amazing and be so fresh that there's no read alike for it, right? That's why it's going to go either way. It's not going to be in the middle, I don't think. So the publisher is calling this Moby Dick meets Scarface. (laughs) I have no interest in reading Moby Dick ever. No one does. And I don't really generally love drug dealer plots. So I don't know. We'll have to see. But here's why I am open to this. First of all, I'm trying to be more open to ridiculous plots after loving Shark Heart last year. That's true. And there are particular reasons why this weirdness is appealing to me. Number one, I loved Capo Crusette's memoir, My Time Among the Whites. This is not her first attempt at fiction. She has written another novel, but this is my first time reading her fiction. She was born and raised in Miami to Cuban parents, and I'm interested in the perspective she'll bring to the story. The publisher is calling this darkly comic, which I do love. And the fact that this totally weird plot is darkly comic, like makes it a little easier to swallow for me. The story is told from Izzy's and Lolita's perspectives. So there is a perspective told from an orca whale. Oh, kind of like remarkably bright creatures, Marcello. Exactly. Okay. But that would normally make me nervous, but I have read a chapter told from Lolita's perspective already, and I really liked it. I did sample the first chapter and the beginning of the next two chapters, and I really loved the writing. And apparently Lolita does have some very human-like personality characteristics, so that might make me you know, able to connect with her as a character. The setting of Miami is apparently a full-on character in this story, and I love when that happens. And Kirkus also gave it a starred review and called it unclassifiable and unforgettable. Oh, sameness has been kind of an issue in my reading lately. So that's another reason I'm taking a risk on this. Fingers crossed it doesn't crash and burn. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say. Or get eaten by the orca, maybe I should say. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. Oh, I'm very intrigued. You can bet this one for me. Yeah, I will. Say Hello to My Little Friend by Janine Capo-Crusette, and it's coming out March 5th. Catherine, what is your next pick? Well, this pick should be a shoe-in. Okay, because it's from one of our favorite authors, but I'm actually a little apprehensive. The author is the fabulous Anna Quinlan, and the novel is After Annie. Annie is a wife and mother to four young children when she dies unexpectedly. The story is about how her husband, children, and best friend cope without her. I'm nervous because this sounds quiet. As far as I can tell, the novel's premise is grief and how each of these people responds to the loss of someone so integral to their life. I have no doubt about Quinlan's writing and that she understands other women and can portray their innermost feelings accurately. My guess is that this is going to be as much about the past as the present and that Annie, although dead, is still going to be a vital character. I'm just uncertain about a story like this right now. I've only read one bit of true literary fiction, and it was hard. 
Quinlan's writing has always resonated with me. Even if a plot felt a bit wonky, there were women experiencing things I could easily understand. I'm just not sure I have the emotional capacity right now for a novel about grief and loss. But given the compassion that comes through in Quinlan's writing, I'm hoping this will ultimately be about growth through adversity and how love shapes us. And that's after Annie and it comes out March 5th. I'm obviously really looking forward to this too. I would look forward to hearing Anna Quinlan's take on grief and loss. That could be something that would feel really good to me right now. Exactly. Following the loss of my mom, right? I mean, I mean, it was like a year and a half ago, but. That's not very long. I know, I know. Yeah. But I, I too am nervous because I thought her last novel, Alternate Side, was pretty boring. Right. Part of me wonders if like, you know, some legendary authors get to the point in their career when they're still writing books, but nobody's really editing them or giving them feedback because they're so legendary. And so kind of the quality drips off a little bit. I hope she's not there. Right. Oh, me too. We'll have a good talk about this during the circle back. (laughs) Yeah. All right. My last pick is my second sports fiction of the day. This time we are focusing on the radical intimacy of physical competition. That's per the publisher. This is Headshot by Rita Bullwinkle. It's coming out March 12th and it's a debut. This story follows eight female teenage boxers as they compete for a national title in Rio, Nevada. And the author is a former competitive athlete. She was the captain of a Division I water polo team, which that is really cool, actually. That's a very sort of out there sport. Right. Especially for women. But she understands what it's like to be in intense competition. And I do wonder why she chose boxing. Right. Like, I kind of would have be, I would be interested in a book about women's water polo. (laughs) Right. I agree. But regardless... I love the way this is structured. Each chapter covers a fight at this tournament, and it goes into the past and futures of the two competitors fighting. So you've got these fights, and then you're getting the backstory as well as sort of what's going to happen with the two competitors. It explores the, quote, desire, envy, perfectionism, madness, and sheer physical pleasure that motivates young women to fight. And I love this break from gender norms and celebration of personality traits that are sort of necessary for athletic success. Not sort of necessary. They are necessary for athletic success, but they are much more, quote, acceptable by society in men than in women. So what happens to female athletes that need these qualities for success, but then they're kind of frowned upon out in the real world for having these qualities because they're not feminine enough or whatever? Also, this book got another starred review from Kirkus, and Kirkus says it has the momentum of a sports novel told in elevated literary language. Ooh. Yeah, so this is like a literary sports novel. Also, it's only 224 pages. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that's Headshot by Rita Bullwinkle coming out March 12th. Catherine, what is your last book? Well, my previous choice had me a little nervous, but my final winter pick has me almost scared, but in the best way possible. (laughs) We have a lot of nerve-wracking picks today, by the way. I know we did. It's Percival Everett's James, and it's another retelling. It's a retelling of Huckleberry Finn. Oh. From the perspective of Jim 
the slave who accompanies Huck. So that answers your question about what am I going to do when they run out of Greek myths to retell? I see. There are so many classics written. But I am interested in classic retellings. Yes. Oh, I love them. Because I don't want to actually go read the classic, but I will read a retelling. Exactly. No, I love it. I read Huckleberry Finn so long ago, I can barely remember it, except to say it's about Huck and Jim rafting down the Mississippi to find safety for themselves. Huck is a white boy with an abusive father, and Jim is trying to escape slavery. The main reasons I chose this book without hesitation are, one, I'm a huge fan of the classics being retold, as we've already mentioned. So to see what a Black author does with a tale of the South written by a white author is an easy yes. And two, I still feel a jolt thinking about Everett's last novel, The Trees. This man's mind It has all the brilliance and precision of a diamond saw blade, which is a tool used to abrade and cut through the hardest materials. And what could be harder than dismantling an American classic? Apparently, Everett doesn't meddle much with the original book's environment and plot, but focuses on bringing James to life. In Huckleberry Finn, he's considered simple-minded, useful only for his size and strength. But in James will have access to a real human being whose abilities were never considered by an author like Mark Twain. And that access will be through the mind of Percival Everett, a black writer of formidable skill who has no time or patience for what the white establishment calls a classic. Once again, I'm drawn to an author like Tommy Orange, who makes me feel deeply uncomfortable while at the same time makes me laugh with the vicious wit he turns on the ruling class of the times. You used darkly comic about one of your, Percival Everett takes darkly comic to a level. You're reading it thinking I should not be laughing, but you are. I love that. Yeah. He's wonderful. The current Goodreads rating is 4.6, like a book you mentioned earlier, which I'm not sure I've ever seen one so high pre-pub, but that's James and it comes out March 19th. All right. It is that time where we get to choose the book we are most excited about for winter. Catherine, what's your pick? I'm going with Wandering Stars by Tommy Orange. I like it. So my pick is obviously Mercury by Amy Jo Burns because I've already read it and it was five stars. But when that happens, I always make a second choice because I feel like it's cheating a little bit to pick the book you've already read and loved. Mm -hmm. So of the books I have not yet read, I am going with Leaving by Roxana Robinson. That micro genre, intense love stories that are not romances has been crushing it for me lately. All right, Catherine, thank you. You're welcome. As always, we'll have links to all of these books in the show notes. And in two weeks, which is January 24th, Catherine and I will be back with our annual Best Backlist We Read Last Year episode, which is always a favorite. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links, and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. If you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Sarah's Bookshelves. There's a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. And make sure to follow Sarah's Bookshelves live in your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. 
You can find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at sarahsbookshelves, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.